It is more fun to uh, do baptisms than to talk about euthanasia. Uh, That is what the message is about today. It's it's about dying. Uh, Some of you might be thinking, dying, that's the last thing I'll do. Uh, (laughs) And you'd be right. (laughs) But if we think of it, okay, euthanasia, that's uh, that's kind of a Debbie Downer way of thinking it. Um, And, well, we're we're not for euthanasia. We are we're for life and for valuing it. And so the positive way to think about this is that we're thinking about the, the intrinsic value and dignity of all human beings from the beginning that they enter this world at conception all the way until God takes, uh, takes us home. And to, from the beginning of life to the, to the end of life, uh, that dignity, that value, and that care that he has for us and that uh, we should care for others as stewards of the lives that he has entrusted to us. And we also can think about the hope that we have uh, that goes beyond this life. Uh, hope that when we leave this body, we're absent from the body and present with the Lord. And not only that, that the Bible points to physical resurrection, that just as Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, and that's what baptism you know, part of it represents. We die with Christ, we raise with Christ, and that happens to us. If you're a believer, that's happened to you spiritually, but it's also going to happen physically too. You are going to be raised from the dead and reunited with a, a physical body. This is the way it is meant to be. This is the good way that God has created it. So there's so many positive things to look at as we think about this and we, we conclude this series that we've been doing all January on uh, valuing life and life being good. And most of these messages, we've talked about the beginning of life and valuing life from, from the very, very beginning. But today we're, we're talking about, and, and Nick talked last week about uh, how it's, it's throughout life. It is for, um, you know, uh, the unborn, it is caring for, for infants, it's caring for their moms, and uh, we want to be pro-life all the way through life, and that means until the end as well. And we do live in a culture that is, is losing that, a culture that is becoming more and more a culture of death, that celebrates that and, and values uh, death and death on our terms um, more than really valuing life. Think of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, 1 through 2. It says, for everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. It starts it out this way. And God is one that is the author of all these things. And in the same way that we are not sovereign over when we enter this world, we are also not sovereign over when we leave this world. And there's a lot of people that want to be. They want to have that, that control, that, um, that sovereign God-like control over, over everything, but that's not how it is. And the big idea of this message is we want to say that not only are we to value and protect human life at the beginning of life, but we're to do the same thing all the way to the end of life. So euthanasia, like abortion, is an assault on the stewardship of life that is given to us by God. Uh, I won't assume everyone here knows what euthanasia means, uh, euthanasia actually comes from two different Greek words. The "u" part means good, and uh, the second part uh, is from thanatos, which means death. And if you are thinking thanatos, that sounds like Thanos uh, from the Marvel movies. Yeah, they basically took the word for death, the Greek word for death, and made it into a comic book character. 
Uh, so literally, euthanasia is supposed to mean the, the good death, at least for those that are, are proponents of it. Uh, this can include um, oftentimes other things. They talk about physician-assisted suicide. Uh, when we talk about suicide or sometimes mercy killing, uh, and sometimes, you know, they describe it in different ways to make it sound more pleasant than what it is. But it has the assumption that the good death supposedly means dying on your own terms. And I want to make the case for you today that uh, although many people are growing to accept euthanasia and it has become physician-assisted suicide uh, legal in many states already, that it is, it is not moral. And it is actually also not a good idea at all. And there's ramifications that we need to think about. The first thing I want us to remember, and this goes all the way back to Pastor Nick's first message, and the kind of theme underlying this whole series has to do with stewardship. And to remember that our lives are not our own to do with whatever we want. They are a stewardship given to us by God. So our lives are stewardship from the Lord and not ours to do with whatever we please. And if you believe that, that is going to change your look on on so many things. That uh, both if you're a parent and there are lives that are in your care, uh, they are given to you as from the Lord, but as a steward, not an owner to do just whatever you want with them. And even your own life is a gift entrusted to you from the Lord that you are a steward of, and you are not the one that ultimately uh, is, is completely sovereign to do whatever you want. This goes against so much of the uh, prevalent views in the world today. So much of everything today is about autonomy. Autonomy means you make your own laws, you make your own rules. That word literally means self-rule or self-law. And there is a modern just obsession with autonomy. And for so many people, this is the, the guiding principle. It is the most important thing that we are just, we are autonomous and can do whatever we want. Self-determination. And so they argue that that means, uh, in this case, that we ought to be able to determine exactly how we want to, to go out. In Pastor Nick's message at the beginning of this series, uh, he just uh, laid down the biblical case that uh, for all of us, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, we all belong to God. And he is the one that is ultimately uh, the, the, the owner. He is the one that has given us, again, as a stewardship, uh, put in our care, but we answer to him about this. And so, I'll refer you back to that if you, if you haven't seen it, but if you're a Christian especially, to remember um, that we, of all people, should especially know that we are not our own. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. It says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. So that flies in the face of this whole autonomy. I'm my own. I can do whatever I want. You were bought with a price. And that price that the Lord purchased was, was shedding his blood for you. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So just in the same way, uh, with all these issues we've been talking about all month, with abortion, with euthanasia, so much of this is trying to take into our hands what should be in the Lord's hands. Uh, playing God. Taking what is, is His to decide and to control and deciding that it's up to us to do this. 
And you see ways that this plays out. Because sometimes we'll think, well, uh, euthanasia, this must be for uh, specifically people that, I mean, they're about to, to die anyways. They're in just amazing amounts of pain. But you read more and more stories. Uh, we're going to see actually the majority where it's not like that. For example, in 2015, a 75-year-old woman named Gil Farrow ended her life in an assisted suicide clinic, abandoning her children and her life partner who loved her. Her reason? Quote, I do not think old age is fun. The woman suffered no serious health issues. She even stated, I am enjoying my life. But she worried that at some later time, she might deteriorate to a, quote, stage when I may be requiring a lot of help. And so she decided to have her life ended because she wasn't even at that stage yet, but she just didn't want to be there. Now, in the human view that just autonomy and self-control is everything, you say, well, that's her decision to make. What I want you to consider is this is the Lord's prerogative and that your life is a valuable stewardship that needs to be cared for until the end. And so the second point, we're building on this, we have kind of five points. We may not kill ourselves or those who are nearing the end of life. Just saying that as a, as a statement. And we can see this from Scripture. We've talked about some of these passages in the series. I encourage you to look these up if you have time. Genesis 9, 5-6, and Exodus twenty thirteen Make it clear that the murder is sin. The killing uh, someone is sin, and self-murder then is still murder. There's nothing in, in Scripture that says that uh, to authorize that for yourself is okay, or that murder is wrong, except when you hit you know, 80 years old, or if your life value uh, is less than it would be, or your, your contribution that you're going to make to society is, is kind of done, then it's okay. It doesn't say that. But it says in Exodus 20, 13, in Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. Also, passage that's good to uh, look to, if, if you're able to turn to it, you can turn to Second Samuel chapter 1, right at the beginning, and it talks about Saul. At the end of First Samuel, uh, it gives an account of his death, but then you have a report of it that gives some more details here. So I'm going to read this to you, and you see that this presents uh, what is a, a case of euthanasia in Scripture, and it presents this as being something uh, that is that is wrong, that is that is sin. Second Samuel chapter one: After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. Because at the end, uh, Saul had, um, he wanted somebody to, to, to kill him. He had been wounded. Uh, the other person wouldn't do that, and so he, he fell on his own spear uh, to try and take his life. But apparently he was still alive at this point. And so it says, um, 
There was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. He brought them to, to David. And David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David sent to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. And David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I've killed the Lord's anointed. So in this account, we see this. Saul was mortally wounded and he was suffering. A lot of times people say, well, if, it's, if death is, is near and there's suffering, then it should be permitted. Well, you had this. Paul even, or Saul even asked to be killed. So it was something that he was asking for. But David, and the way that Scripture views this, still viewed this as, as murder and punished this Amalekite accordingly. According to Genesis 9, 5 through 6, uh, life is not to be taken. Um, but a murderer, because of the value of life, because, as it says, they're created in the image of God, uh, that when there is uh, this, uh, the first-degree murder, that this is uh, something that is punishable by that person losing their life because of the seriousness of it. You know, that is something that God has authorized. So according to this, I think these are two scriptural examples that back up the statement that we're, we're not to kill ourselves. So we're not to commit suicide. We're not to um, uh, have euthanasia on ourselves, but also uh, not to have you know, assistance from somebody else and to do this. Now, two questions you might be thinking, and we'll deal with some more as we go through this. But one thing you might be thinking is, well, you know, we put, we put down animals, Okay. Um, I mean, a few months ago, we had taken our beloved T.T. the cat, uh, who we had for 17 years. It was called T.T. because uh, Eric, when he was real little, didn't say kitty, came out T.T. And, uh, you know, now he's a senior, and and, and T.T. lived a good long life. And I don't think we were sinning uh, by putting T.T. the the cat down, as hard as that was. Um, But... We might think, well, we do that. You know, people shoot horses if they're, if they're lame. What is the difference? And I'll just give you two to think through. Well, one, humans are made in the image of God and animals aren't. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. Humans are humans. Animals are, are not humans. It's a different thing. And the reason that uh, Genesis 9 gives uh, as that reason why you don't kill a human being is because they're made in the image of God. There's this dignity and worth that every human being has. And also, too, we've been given dominion over the animals, but we haven't been given that same type of authority uh, to kill others or ourselves. Now, there are um, a a few uh, 
times when God has given a delegated authority. He's given uh, Romans 13 uh, authority to the, to, to the government to punish criminals, to, to execute murderers, uh, things like that. Uh, defense, uh, I think national and personal defense, there, there are some of these uh, that, are, that it's a different situation and that there is authorization. Uh, but for what we're thinking about now, God hasn't given us that authorization. But we are authorized to, I mean, you can kill and eat an animal, okay? And many of them are delicious. Um, but that is, it's just animals and humans are different. And if we just think well, we're just a continuation of the animals, we're not going to have this a view that there's something that distinctly separates human beings from animals. And we're both created by God, but very, very different. Another question, is suicide unforgivable? That's a big question. I'll tell you, I want it, to, it's hard to answer because you don't want somebody to, um, I, I don't want you to do this. You know, and if there's ever thoughts that you have, I want you to get help and I don't want you to do it. Um, many um, people believe that uh, if you commit suicide, you automatically go to hell. And maybe a lot of people have at least heard that. And um, a lot of that comes from the theology that developed during the Middle Ages in Roman Catholicism. And in that system of theology, there was a distinction between what they called uh, venial sin and mortal sin. And they said venial sins are the kind of the smaller, lighter sins. And these sins, if you are in a state of grace... Okay, if you're already in a state of grace and you commit a venial sin, it doesn't kill grace in your life. It doesn't send you to hell, but it makes it so that you have more, more time in that system that you have to go to purgatory after you die and suffer there before you can go to heaven. Now, I, I don't believe that this distinction between venial and mortal sins is found in the Bible. I don't believe that purgatory is found in the Bible, but that's what was taught. So that's a venial sin. But then it was taught that there are mortal sins and the reason that it's called mortal, um, something that's mortal is something that, that kills. And that mortal sins kill grace. So that even if you are in a state of grace, if you commit a mortal sin, it kills grace in your life. And therefore, you would die, and you wouldn't go to heaven, you wouldn't go to purgatory even, you would go to hell if you die in a state of mortal sin. And in that teaching, suicide, it, it is a very serious sin. Suicide is murder, and suicide is a mortal sin. And therefore, if you've committed that, you have died with a mortal sin that you had no opportunity to uh, go through penance and work your way back into a state of grace. And so in that system, it was believed that if you commit suicide, that you are going to hell. And what I want to tell you, and again, there's a part of me that wants you to be afraid of that so you don't do anything to yourself, okay? And again, this is, it is sin. You're not supposed to do it, and your life is valuable, and we want you to have help. And if there's any you know, issues that you have, talk to people, see people. We want to help you. But the good news is that as bad as any sin is, the blood of Christ is stronger than that. And the blood of Christ is able to take away any sin, past, present, future, for those that turn to Jesus as Savior. So suicide, yeah, it is sin, but it does not take away salvation from anyone that has, in actuality, in reality, 
turned and trusted Jesus Christ alone as their Savior, their, their sin-bearer. And when that happens, you're not only saved your past sins, but any, any, your future sins as well. And so if you're believing, you sin again, that doesn't knock you out of grace, it doesn't send you to hell. We, out of gratitude, we don't want to sin anymore, and we realize it's bad, and we don't want to sin against this God that loved us and, and, and died on the cross for us. You know, we're not our own, we want to live for him. Romans 8, 38 through 39, just one example. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, that includes you, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The blood of Christ atones for every sin. If you have not accepted the blood of Christ and his work on your behalf, I pray that you would. It is the hope of salvation. It is the only hope of salvation. And you need that. And it will change your life and your eternity forever. Third point. So euthanasia, I believe it is, is sin. It's morally wrong. And also euthanasia devalues human lives. It devalues the lives of, of human beings. Euthanasia, think about it, it proclaims that only certain lives are worth living. That there can be some lives that it's just not worth keeping you alive. And we're going to see it's not just, okay, you're, you're terminally ill, you're going to you die in five minutes anyways. But it is, uh, spills over, it devalues the lives of the elderly. That if you're past your prime, you know, we, you know, we throw away milk that's past its expiration date. And that's the view and the logic that comes from this. What about the disabled? What about those that don't have the, the cognitive ability? Or those that feel that just they didn't have the life that they want to have? It makes us think that what we can contribute to society is what gives us value. And people think that all the time. That it's what you do, what you contribute, what you can give to society, and that's where your value comes from. And that's where the biblical message is completely different. That human dignity does not come from what you can contribute. Hey, it's great to contribute. Contribute if you can. But that's not where your value comes from. And so whether you are uh, an unborn child in the womb, or whether you are someone that is uh, severely uh, disabled, or whether you're someone at the end of life, and there's not much more that uh, in the world's way of thinking you're going to contribute to society, your value as a human being remains exactly the same because you're a human being created in the image of God with dignity and value and worth from your Creator. And if that's true... We value other people no matter what, and we value the lives that God has given us as well. So we have intrinsic value, and it's not a utilitarian value, what we can do, what we can, what we can give. One important thing to realize, too, as people make uh, different countries and now different states making laws uh, allowing physician-assisted suicide, at the beginning... It will be proposed that these are going to be for the most serious, you know, rare situations where there is no hope. Somebody is in just uh, amazing amounts of pain, you know, and it, it's a merciful thing to, to do this to them. Now, there's other things we can talk to. I mean, it, there is a lot of 
amazing pain management and different things that uh, we're able to do today. It's not like it was you know, 100 years ago or 200 years ago. But a point I want to get across is that laws permitting euthanasia always end up growing and, and morphing beyond what was originally presented. That at first it may be said, this is going to be for severe cases. We'll make sure it's documented by several doctors and uh, people are choosing this by themselves. Uh, but it grows and it changes. And as people refer to this as the, the slippery slope. Uh, but it's not just a theoretical thing. We actually see this happening in places where they have um, allowed this. And so, for example, uh, the Netherlands and Belgium in 2001, 2002... Uh, some of the first countries to uh, legalize euthanasia. And in Belgium, for example, at first only, it was only for adults suffering from an identifiable terminal condition and that was identified as unbearable suffering. So that's how it's originally presented. It's, it, hey, this is just going to be for adults. It's going to be that they're in a terminal condition. They are they're suffering, 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 and this is a merciful thing to do. But think of what happens after this, that um, things very quickly started to change. And even in 2002 already, right from the beginning, they changed their definition of suffering unbearably from any untreatable medical condition. Uh, It didn't have to be terminal anymore, but it also could be a non-terminal thing. So not that they were going to die. So now, at first they said, well, it's just terminal conditions. You're, you're going to die. Which, by the way, terminal, I mean, that can, you can have a terminal condition, but you can have six months, you could, you could live years. That is not the same thing as meaning that you are actively dying or that you're at death's door. But then, not only did it go from that to non-terminal, but they also added uh, psychiatric reasons. So if there was severe depression, severe mental anguish, or suffering as well. So it becomes this Trojan horse, this kind of this bait and switch. In September of 2015, the Dutch government announced its intentions to expand its euthanasia policy to allow the doctors to end the lives of infants with parents' consent. When it was decided that the child is terminally ill with no prospect of recovery and suffering great pain. So now it's not just adults, but it's, it's infants as well. We're not even talking about the unborn. This is born children. In 2016, Belgian's law changed it. This is unbelievable. So that children of any age can be asked, can ask to be euthanized if they're deemed to have a terminal illness. And the first child was killed in September of 2016. I said they've changed these grounds to include psychic emotional pain. A few examples of this. In 2015 in Belgium, a perfectly healthy 85-year-old woman made her decision to be euthanized. She made the decision five minutes after her daughter died. Her daughter died, obviously very tragic, very sad thing. And she, just, she said, quote, I have no reason to live anymore. Grief is unbearable pain. And she was put to death three months later. 2019, a 17-year-old Dutch girl who had a very tragic life. She was sexually abused and and at 11 raped as a 14-year-old, felt she could no longer go on living and was legally allowed to die at home after she had sought help from an end-of-the-life clinic because she felt her life was unbearable due to depression. 
and her heart goes out to her and what she's going through and the trauma. And I wish somebody could have extended hope in Christ to her. But see how this changes from it's going to be adults with these identifiable physical thing. And I would say that is, we shouldn't even do that. But then it so quickly changes to a teenager here suffering with grief. Who needs Jesus? Who needs counseling? Who needs all kind? In 2021, the Canadian Parliament has now adopted legalization that would extend the right to physician-assisted suicide to the disabled, not even to the terminally ill, but those disabled, um, even when the disability does not mean impending death. So we see it's, it's gone from adults who are terminally ill to adults who weren't terminally ill to including things like depression, to children, to younger children, even the disabled. So yeah, I believe euthanasia devalues human lives. It really does. And when people think about what are the reasons why people seek euthanasia, here's a statistic. Oregon was the first state in the United States to allow for physician-assisted suicide. And according to, to their research, the most common reason that people cite for pursuing physician-assisted suicide is not intractable pain, but rather loss of independence. A review of data from Oregon from 1998 to 2016 revealed that 79 to 92% of people who committed suicide with physician assistance cited loss of autonomy, inability to engage in activities that make life enjoyable, and loss of dignity as their motivation for ending life. The intractable pain we might assume at the end of life was only a factor in uh, 25% of the cases. And there's other things we could talk about. Uh, they find that uh, a lot of it, you think, well, this is going to be voluntary. You know, people have decided this or decided it ahead of time. But you also end up with issues of involuntary euthanasia where the doctors or, or someone else, you know, makes that call. And the Dutch government's uh, study um, found in one case in one year that more than 1,000 cases of euthanasia were actually without explicit consent. And actually, even... Beyond that, there was another 4,941 cases where a lethal amount of morphine was administered without the patient's consent. So it just goes from one thing to another. I think another thing we have to realize is acceptance of euthanasia puts pressure on the elderly to get out of the way. We think, oh, it does. yeah, it does. If it becomes accepted, it becomes this subtle or maybe not so subtle pressure that, hey, you've lived your time, you've had your fun, you've used your resources, you're a lot of, you know, a drain, you know, retirement's going down. You don't want to be a burden. And even if family members aren't saying that or applying that, a lot of people are saying that to themselves in their head. That they don't want to be a burden. They don't want to do this. If you think that your value comes from your utility and what you can contribute, and if it's all about what I can do, then you're going to view your value as, as different. And when all this happens, the, supposedly the right to die kind of becomes very quickly a, a duty to die or an obligation to die. Subtly or not subtly. There's things that we've seen happen. California legalized physician-assisted suicide in 2015. Shortly thereafter, a health insurer refused to pay for chemotherapy for a woman suffering from terminal cancer, but they agreed that they would pay for the suicide pills because they're a lot less expensive. 
It puts pressure on the elderly. Don't be a burden, a financial drain. And you do see that at times. People suddenly giving the hint that, you know, my, my inheritance is kind of uh, being taken up by the nursing home. People that want to get out of the way. It becomes a, a pressure to become the, the considerate hero who does not stay alive too long using resources that could be spent elsewhere. And yeah, people will say, I don't want to be a burden. I want to, I want to think about this. And this, this might sound completely contrary to our normal way of thinking. Because maybe you're thinking, yeah, I don't want to be a burden. Carrying burdens is what families do. Okay? When we came into this life, we're a burden. Some of us are burdens the whole way through. <laughs> and there's come a time where we're going to be more of that. And maybe burden is a loaded term. But yeah, we have dependency. And we shouldn't have this idol of independency. Do you know the only one that's absolutely independent, that doesn't actually need someone else? That's God. And if you're seeking to be independent in that way, you are trying to be God. He is the one that is the author and creator of life. Acts 17 says, it was The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to mankind and breath to everything. He is independent. We are dependent. Accept that. And it's okay. And it's good. And it is, it is a beautiful thing to, to give help to others. And it is okay to receive that. And there's a time when we need to be able to be willing to receive that help. So reject the idol of independency. I think that there can be times when the idea of I don't want to be a burden, there can be a legitimate way to think that, but there can also be a sinful way to have that bouncing around in your head. We must value the lives of the elderly. And that's a whole other message there too. If we believe this, care for those. Don't treat people like they're past their expiration date. Okay, don't push off people that you might have to care for, you know, and push them out of your lives. James one twenty seven says, true religion is caring for widows and orphans. Okay, so call grandma, okay? Make that visit to the nursing home if you need to. And those of you, I know there are people here that you are or you have done a lot to take care of aging parents. And sometimes it has been a sacrifice and it has been hard, hard, hard. And I want to say to you, well done. God is pleased with you for that. To wrap this up, I do need to add this part. We may not kill, but there may come a time when it is proper to acknowledge death and cease to prolong dying. There is a distinction, a very careful distinction here that we need to make. There are some principles, and I just only have time to give the, the quick overview here. The principle is always care, never kill. So when somebody is in a, a, a suffering, when there is um, you know, illness, there's something, and there's things that cannot be done, we don't kill, we always care. And we have to think, what does that mean? And valuing life does not mean necessarily prolonging the process of death. That there can come a time when it's okay to acknowledge that, I believe this is the appointed time that the Lord has. And there can come a time when it's okay to let that person go, to have permission to, to go. Not actively killing them, not doing anything to hasten their death, but ceasing to, to fight against 
dying at a certain time. So there's two opposite extremes. You know, one would be um, you know, trying to hasten the coming of death and speeding it along, but the other would be refusing to acknowledge that, that the time has come. And that sometimes you are able to say to someone or to yourself or that I may need to say to you at, at some point that it's okay. You fought the good fight. You finished the race and you're prepared and the Lord is ready for you and, and it's okay at this point. So this means not actively killing, but there's a time when it can be okay to stop the, the heroic measures, the you know, extreme things that, that we would do to prolong life, especially when it's not working. Quick principles, there's more nuances than just this that would be things to, to think through, to, to discuss. I believe it is wrong to let someone die when there's reasonable hope of recovery and we're able to help, Okay. So I think there are things, you know, even some of the extreme measures, if you get in an accident, but you can pull through this probably. Yeah, you should accept, you know, the, the breathing tubes and different things that might be needed for a little bit. That's okay if you can pull through this. It may not be wrong to cease aggressive intervention, or sometimes called heroic measures, when it's either useless, futile, or what could be described as excessively burdensome. Um, when there's just nothing more that, that really can be done. We can try things, but it's causing more harm, it's causing more pain, and it's not really going to do, humanly speaking, any good. If God wanted to do a miracle, he could do a miracle with or without her, but humanly speaking, it's, it's just extending things. Um, you know, a clear example of this would be, let's say if someone is brain dead, and the actual cells of the brain have, have died, and there are machines keeping the heart pumping and the, the lungs, but that person has died. That's different than a coma. That's different than a persistent vegetative state. You have to clarify that. Um, but you know, that would be something where there's, there, there's no point in that at, at, some, at that point. And so I, I can't go into this uh, right now, but these, I think, are kind of basic principles. When we talk about excessively burdensome, that would mean, you know, especially, you know, to the, the person undergoing this, the, the pain, the trauma, there could be something where it's just like there, there's no way... You know, the expenses could be covered. That could be something, if that really is the case. Um, but it's, to be clear, it's that the treatment is extensively burdensome, burdensome, burden, that the treatment is extensively burdensome, not that their life is burdensome. If your actual motive is that their life is burdensome, that's wrong. But sometimes attempted trying to cure the patient may get in the way of actually caring for them. And there comes a time sometimes when it's, we, care means transitioning from seeking cure to seeking comfort for the dying and acknowledging that. And finally, Christian, the Christian hope includes resurrection of our physical bodies. We need to remember that the, the physical body is good. We need to respect the dignity of the physical body even after death. I have questions about um, cremation. I'll give you my real quick take on this. Although I don't think that cremation is necessarily a sin, there are things that I think Christians should think through. There were times when only pagans cremated. Uh, and at the time, it was because, one, they had a low view of the body. They viewed it that, you know, the body was evil, we're trapped in the body, and so you just get rid of the body, and uh, they didn't care about this. 
Christians, in contrast, saw the goodness of the physical body and looked forward to the resurrection. And so uh, burial uh, pointed to that. And I think a case can be made that all things being equal, Christians should prefer burial to cremation if all things are equal. Now, many people in our society choose cremation. I'm not saying this is everyone, but some people for poor reasons. Some that do not value the human body and do whatever you want with. I remember joking around, this is when I was the younger guy, that when I die, you can cut me up and feed me with dogs for all I care. And I thought I was being funny, but I realized, you know, that, that's disrespectful to the human body that God gives, that he's going to resurrect to try and view it that way. And I thought I was being spiritual, that, you know, only the spirit is what really what matters. And I look back and I realize that was a wrong attitude. Some people have a pantheistic view that spreading the ashes will make them one with nature, and honestly, some people just want to do whatever's cheapest and easiest without really much thought. Now, for most Christians today who choose cremation, they do so out of stewardship concerns, and there are things to consider. I mean, back in the day, things weren't as expensive. And in a sense, cremation only speeds up what happens to the natural body over time. And even in the Old Testament, the bodies of the dead would be, they'd be laid to rest first in a cave or a tomb, And then once the body had decomposed, they would go into the tomb again. They would collect the bones, they would put it in a jar, and they would put it in a little cubby hole there um, in the tomb. Sometimes the tomb would have several bodies in it, kind of in process of decaying. That's why the Gospels point out that Jesus was laid to rest in a tomb that had not been used yet. And eventually, for all of us, it's going to be ashes to ashes, dust to dust, unless the Lord returns soon enough after our death. And God will be able to resurrect us no matter what state we're in. Still, if a Christian does choose cremation, they should really think it through and think through all the theological issues and make sure they're not doing it for, for the wrong reasons. And it, absolutely to make sure everything is done with utmost respect for the body and hope for the resurrection that we are promised. Because Christians die in Christ with certain hope of resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy, but it's a conquered enemy, and it's an enemy that we do not need to fear. I pray that you put your trust in Christ, and you do not need to fear this defeated enemy. As we conclude this series, it's true, life is good. And it is a stewardship given to us from God. Let's value it, and let us protect it from beginning to the end. Let's pray. God, we give you praise. We give you thanks. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, that not only are we made alive spiritually at the moment of salvation, but that there's more to come and that at the end of all things, when you return, that we will be raised physically in the same way that Jesus was raised physically, uh, the spiritual and the, and, and the material reunited in the good creation that that you originally meant us to be, Lord God. We thank you that Christ defeated death by dying in our place.
by absorbing the sting of death for us. Death now is powerless. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.